helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. I hear people say that the Constitution is dead, while others, they just simply want to change it. Still others, well, they're interested in adding to the protection of rights included in our Constitution by creating new and additional bills of rights. But do we need more bills of rights? A recent report about a Washington state teacher may explain the reasoning behind North Carolina's attempt to purportedly create a new parent's bill of rights. But I'm reminded of something a wise man once told me. Before you move a marker, find out why it was there in the first place. So today, I want to look into the Washington State incident, and I want to look at the North Carolina legislation, and I want to look at some other events as well. Then I want to ask ourselves a very important question. Do we need more laws protecting our rights, or do we simply need to enforce the ones we already have? Well, hello, everybody, Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution. This is where we read and study the Constitution. We teach the rising generation to be free. I am so glad you could join me today. I want to explore this idea of we just need more laws. And I'll be honest, there's a time when I thought more laws would fix everything. As I've grown, as I've studied the Constitution, I believe that my, you know, not only do I believe that my mind has changed, but I think it's changed for the better. Let's start with this incident out in uh, Washington State. Now, there was a, a Twitter, a tweet went out from a, a, a account called the Principal's Office that said, parents, check your district's policy regarding keeping info about your child's secret from you. There are some scary policies out there. Schools should not have the right to keep info about your child from you un unless abuse by you is suspected. Now, in response to this, this Washington teacher, uh, the account name is, is Kelly Love, says, I cannot disagree with this more. So many students are not safe in this nation from their Christo-fascist parents, and our guidelines and laws have not caught up with this. To me, this, makes, this probably explains why more and more people are looking to do what it appears North Carolina is trying to do, and that's come up with some new laws to add a, a more protections for parents. Now, I recently published an article on the topic, so uh, let's take a look at that. I am loath to use the term Bill of Rights lightly for two very good reasons. First, the overuse of any term tends to diminish its value. Second, just because something claims to be a Bill of Rights doesn't mean it actually is one. The bill may be very good, but that doesn't mean it's truly a Bill of Rights. I believe a recent bill filed in the North Carolina legislature gives us an excellent opportunity to test this hypothesis. Would Senate Bill 49 actually create a parent's bill of rights, or is it just another example of overpromising and underdelivering? Why do I have an issue with the use of the term bill of rights for this legislation? Well, let's start by defining the term. From the Merriam-Webster Dictionary Online, we read that a Bill of Rights is a document containing a formal statement of rights, specifically a summary of fundamental rights and privileges guaranteed to a people against violation by the state. It's used especially of the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. My issues start with how frequently what is called a Bill of Rights is not a document with a formal statement of rights. 
When someone takes a simple piece of legislation and places a Bill of Rights label on it, the meaning gets diminished. Like the boy who cried wolf, people no longer place the weight they once did on the actual Bill of Rights because of the overuse of the term. There is legislation making its way through the North Carolina legislature claiming to be a parent's Bill of Rights. Let's take a look at this legislation and see how good it is and if it's worthy of the title Bill of Rights. Senate Bill 49 is entitled as an act to enumerate the rights of parents to direct the upgrading education, health care, and mental health of their minor children. Well, that sounds good. Sounds like it could be a Bill of Rights. This legislation, among other things, would create an article in the General Statutes of North Carolina with a section titled Parents' Bill of Rights. A parent has the right to the following. This bill does contain a section called the Parents' Bill of Rights. Let's see what rights it is designed to protect and whether or not it meets the definition of a Bill of Rights from Merriam-Webster to direct the education and care of his or her child, to direct the upbringing and moral or religious training of his or her child, to enroll his or her child in a public or non-public school and in any school choice options available to the parent for which the child is otherwise eligible by law in order to comply with compulsory attendance laws as provided in part one of article 26 of this chapter to access and review all education records as authorized by the Federal Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act relating to his or her child. The first four rights revolve around education. Parents have the right to direct their child's education and moral or religious training. They have the right to determine what school their child goes to and to access all educational records. Of course, that's not to say there aren't problems here. Now, I agree with Article 9, Section 1, of the North Carolina Constitution, which states, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools, libraries, and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Yes, education should be encouraged. In fact, the right to education is guaranteed by Article 1, Section 15 of North Carolina's Constitution, which reads, the people have a right to the privilege of education, and it is the duty of the state to guard and maintain that right. Now, if you read the rest of Article 9, though, or even the whole Constitution, what you won't find is the power to make education compulsory. When the state enacts compulsory education laws, they also regulate what would satisfy that requirement. So when this new Parents' Bill of Rights claims that parents have the right to direct the education of their child, it really means within the boundaries established by the state. Not so much of a fundamental right, is it? The other problem is this state law submits both the state and the parents to the Federal Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. That federal law was not made pursuant to the Constitution of the United States, since the power to regulate education was never delegated to the United States by its Constitution. So the Federal Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act is not the supreme law of the land, and the states are not required to abide by it. In fact, according to the case Marbury versus Madison, that act is void. Thus, the particular phraseology of the Constitution of the United States confirms and strengthens the principle, supposed to be essential to all written constitutions, that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void, and that courts, as well as other departments, are bound by that instrument. So if this bill becomes law, it will make the rights of parents in North Carolina subject to an illegal federal law, which means the rights North Carolina is claiming to protect does not consider them unalienable, since they are subject to other laws. Continuing from SB 49, 
to make healthcare decisions for his or her child unless otherwise provided by law, including Article 1A of Chapter 90 of the General Statutes, to access and review all medical records for his or her child as authorized by the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, as amended except as follows. If the parent is the subject of an investigation of a crime committed against the child under Chapter 14 of the General Statutes or an abuse or neglect complaint under Chapter 7B of the General Statutes and an individual authorized to conduct the investigation request that the information not be released to the parent when otherwise prohibited by law. So next to this, Bill of Rights protects the rights of parents to make healthcare decisions for their children. But again, there are problems. These rights are limited by both state law and illegal federal law. I looked up Article 1A of Chapter 90 of the North Carolina General Statutes, where Section 90.21.1 establishes the legal situations when a physician can treat a minor without parental consent. These situations generally revolve around the need for treatment when a parent or guardian cannot be contacted to give consent. But there is one situation that should give every parent pause where the parents refuse to consent to a procedure and the necessity for immediate treatment is so apparent that the delay required to obtain a court order would endanger the life or seriously worsen the physical condition of the child. No treatment shall be administered to a child over the parent's objection as herein authorized unless the physician shall first obtain the opinion of another physician licensed to practice medicine in the state of North Carolina that such procedure is necessary to prevent immediate harm to the child. So even if this legislation is passed, a parent will not have the right to make healthcare decisions for their children if state licensed doctors disagree with it. Furthermore, when it comes to accessing a child's medical records, all it would take is a law to override the rights of the parent to review them. Again, from SB 49, to prohibit the creation, sharing, or storage of a biometric scan of his or her child without the parent's prior written consent, except as authorized pursuant to a court order or otherwise required by law, including GS-7B-2102 and GS-7B-2201. To prohibit the creation, sharing, or storage of his or his child's blood or dioxyribonucleic acid without the parent's prior written consent, except as authorized pursuant to a court order or otherwise required by law, including GS-7B-2201. Here, the state wants to protect the parent's rights to control the collection or storage of biometric or similar data regarding their children. Once again, we see that these rights are limited by the laws of the state. What other rights is the North Carolina legislature trying to protect? To prohibit the creation by the state or of a video or voice recording of his or her child without the parent's prior written consent, except a recording made in the following circumstances. When otherwise prohibited by law, during as part of a court proceeding, as part of an investigation under Chapter 7B or Chapter 14 of the General Statutes. When the recording will be used solely for any of the following purposes, a safety demonstration, including one related to security and discipline on educational property an academic or extracurricular activity, classroom instruction, photo identification cards, security or surveillance of buildings or grounds. Why shouldn't the state get parental permission to record the voice or video of a child as part of an investigation? Well, unless the investigation is into the actions of the parent. Once again, we see the state claiming to protect parents' rights by making sure it protects its ability to violate those rights when it sees fit. Continuing, 
to be promptly notified if an employee of the state suspects that a criminal offense has been committed against his or her child unless the incident has first been reported to law enforcement or the county child welfare agency and notification of the parent would impede the investigation. Lastly, the state wants to make sure that a parent is notified when a state employee suspects a crime has been committed against their child. Well, there is an exception for when law enforcement or child welfare has been notified and including the parents would impede the investigation. But this legislation places absolutely no burden of proof on the state employee to show that the notification of parents would impede the investigation. There are plenty of reports of child services abusing their powers to intimidate parents and abduct children. So how does this legislation guarantee rights against violations by the state? Now, there are other limitations placed on parents' rights. The requirements of this article do not authorize a parent to do any of the following. Engage in unlawful conduct. Abuse or neglect the child as defined in Chapter 7B of the General Statutes. The requirements of this article do not prohibit the following. A state official or employee from acting in his or her official capacity within the reasonable and prudent scope of his or her authority. A court of competent jurisdiction from acting in its official capacity within the reasonable and prudent scope of its authority or issuing an order otherwise permitted by law. And thus we see that the legislature of North Carolina is not so much making a bill of rights, but a bill of privileges under state control that they are extending to parents. As we noted from the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, a bill of rights is a summary of fundamental rights and privileges guaranteed to a people against violation by the state. What's created in this legislation is not the state recognizing the fundamental rights of parents that are protected from the states, but only rights the states will regulate. Now, I'm not saying this legislation is bad. The state of North Carolina sees the importance of parents controlling their children's education, health care, and information, but this is not a true Bill of Rights. Compare the language from North Carolina's Parents' Bill of Rights with that in the Bill of Rights in the Constitution of the United States. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. The protection of rights under the Constitution of the United States uses firm language, shall not be violated, no warrant shall issue. Compare that to the language in North Carolina SB 49, unless otherwise protected by law or when recording will be used solely for. Does that sound like a summary of fundamental rights and privileges guaranteed to a people against violation by the state? I understand the need not only to protect the rights of parents, but to protect children from abusive parents. This legislation, however, goes too far. It not only protects students from abusive parents, but allows the state to supersede those parents' rights by simple legislation. How is allowing the state to legislate the infringement of your rights a protection of your rights? Again, I believe this legislation is pretty good and does a lot to protect the rights of parents. It's just not really a bill of rights, which further diminishes the term. I hope the North Carolina legislature enacts this law. I only wish it would modify the title of Article 29F to something a little more accurate, something that depicts what this law would actually do. May I suggest the Protection of Parental Rights Act. So yes, the bill is pretty good. I do have some issues with it, but it's pretty good. My main issue being it's not creating a bill of rights. And the abuse of that term um, diminishes that for all of us. 
Now, I have some examples of how just defending the rights using the laws we already have would work, and we would, we don't need to make more laws to do what the laws already do. But before I go there, I have to take a break. Now, I hope you head over to the website, constitutionstudy.com, find out more about the Constitution Study, maybe get engaged, join a mailing list, donate to the cause, or just ask a question. Get involved, get off the bench, and get into the game. Also, I want to talk to you about Healthy Cell. They are a leading innovator in supplements designed to work at the cellular level to keep you healthy. One that I truly use, I use it when I need it, is their Immune Super Boost. It combines over a dozen immune supplements in one travel-ready gel pack, all to support your immune system while you're on the go. Now, you can find Immune Super Booster, any of Healthy Cell's great products, at HealthyCell.com. But since you're an America Out Loud listener, I got something for you. If you use the code OUTLOUD at checkout, Healthy Cell will give you 25% off your first order. So please, go to HealthyCell.com, put your card together, try the Immune Super Boost or any of their products, but use that code OUTLOUD at checkout. It lets them know you listen to America Out Loud, and as a thank you, you get 25% off your first order. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have a, an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You've rejoined the Constitution Study. Today we're asking, do we need another Bill of Rights? Do we need more legislation to protect rights? 
Or do we simply need to better understand the laws and, and rights, the protection of rights we already have and apply them? So I contend it is our ignorance of the Constitution and the Constitution of the United States, but of our states, that leads us to believe we need more laws. And to show an example of ignorance of the Constitution, uh, listen to Corinne Jean-Pierre while she's being interviewed on MSNBC. Number one, when it comes to uh, the debt ceiling, that is something that Congress has done uh, 78 times since 1960 and done it in a way that was in a bipartisan way. Because you know why, Ari? It is their constitutional duty to lift the debt ceiling. It is something that they are supposed to do. I challenge Karine Jean-Pierre to give me the article, section, and clause of the Constitution that says Congress is required to raise the debt ceiling. See, because the debt ceiling is not constitutional. I, I don't mean it's against the Constitution. In other the, the, the debt ceiling is not established by the Constitution. It was established by Congress as a way to try and keep from overspending as we have. Now, I don't know if, if Ms. Jean-Pierre's numbers are correct, but if Congress has raised the debt ceiling 78 times since 1960, that tells me Congress has a problem. They're addicted to spending money they don't have. And apparently, this administration's solution to spending us into bankruptcy is to just pedal to the metal. Don't put any restrictions on our ability to spend money we don't have. Don't put any financial restraints on us. Let us do whatever we want. And if we drive the American people into bankruptcy, well, this administration won't have to deal with it. Somebody else will have to deal with it. But only through the ignorance of the Constitution can KJP get on a national television and claim that Congress has a constitutional duty to lift the debt ceiling. You know, I'd almost say Congress, if Congress has a constitutional duty, it's to reprimand KJP for lying to the American people. As an employee of the White House, part of the administration, doesn't she have a responsibility to fulfill an oath of office to support the Constitution? Yet here she is lying about the Constitution. As a member of the executive branch trying to coerce another branch of government into doing something that the administration wants, isn't that a violation of the separation of powers? Isn't that bad behavior, or maybe a what, what you, they used to call a misdemeanor. I actually looked up the word in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and a misdemeanor simply means bad behavior. Well, if you're going to go out and, and lie about the Constitution, isn't that bad behavior? And shouldn't that be at least reprimanded? But it won't be. I, I'd be shocked if anything happens. Why? Well, probably because the vast majority of Congress don't know any better. They either believe she's correct and that there's a duty to raise the debt ceiling. I don't believe most of them do, but there's probably a few out there. But none of them really seem to realize that as the representatives of the people and the representatives of the states, they have the authority to express the opinion of the people. Now, should this be an impeachment? Should, be, should she be impeached for this? This alone? No. 
But certainly this, the, the Congress should be able to come out and say, um, not only does KJP lie to the American people and therefore should be reprimanded, but the administration should be reprimanded for trying to interfere with the operation of the, uh, uh, of the only branch of government elected by the people. Again, our ignorance of the Constitution, we, most people think that the people elect the president. The people don't. Not one single American has ever voted for president in our entire history. I'm going to say that again because I know people aren't going to believe me, but I'll prove it. Not one single American has ever voted for president in our nation's history. If you look at your ballot, you'll see what you're voting for are electors for a candidate. Want proof? Find a constitution, go to Article 2, Section 1, and read Clause 2, which says, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state shall be entitled in the Congress, but no senator or representative person holding office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed as an elector. The states appoint the electors. Now, the, mo the states have decided to do so based on a popular election within the state. But that doesn't change the fact the person you vote for in that polling booth is not president. It's an elector that promises to vote for a candidate. The president isn't actually elected until those, voter until those electors vote in December. But you see, our ignorance, reinforced not simply by our education system, but by our media, means we don't understand that. So we go, I go back to the, what started all this. The, the, represent, the only branch of government elected by the people have a right to uh, say, you know what? We don't like the fact uh, we, that uh, the executive branch, the, this administration, is violating the separation of powers. Now, as I said, the debt limit is not uh, established by the Constitution. It's established by Congress. And, and if there is one amendment I would like to change, I would like to submit, um, it would be, this would be it. This is one of them. First, I'd like to get rid of, this. I'd like to repeal the 16th and 17th Amendments. But Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2 says Congress has the power to, uh, to borrow money on the credit of the United States. I would like to see some limitations placed on that. Since this money is coming from the people, their representatives in the state should have some say as to how much money Congress can actually borrow because they've shown themselves to be profligate and, and destructive to our, our economy, destructive to our society, and uh, destructive to our future. In, in another example, uh, the Department of Justice sent a letter to Congress uh, asking them to quickly renew the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. Now, this law allegedly authorizes the U.S. government to electronically surveil foreigners, but it's believed, and they believe there's plenty of evidence, that it's actually used to, to, uh, um, well, to monitor U.S. citizens. See, the, the foreign in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act means they're supposed to be monitoring people that are located outside of the U.S. But the way the law is written, all it takes is one person. If you send an email overseas, 
Well, they can only they can look at the at your side of the email. They can look at your stuff and they can expand that, I think, to like three levels of people you contact through that email address. So this is a, a an issue. And some people would say, we need to modify FISA. We need a new law. How about this? See, I look at this at the letter that uh, um, the DOJ sent. And they said, uh, Title Seven of FISA, and in particular Section 702, has been a critical authority for the intelligence community and Department of Justice since its passage in 2008. The authority allows the U.S. government to acquire foreign intelligence information from individual terrorists, weapons proliferators, hackers, and other foreign intelligence targets located overseas who operate using U.S. electronic communication service providers. It also requires the intelligence community and Department of Justice to comply with robust privacy and civil liberties safeguards, which are overseen by all three branches of government. Well, okay, that may be what the FISA language says, but it's not exactly what it does. So what do we do to protect ourselves? Don't, do we need another law? How about we simply look at the Constitution? In fact, let's take a look at uh, the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their houses, persons, uh, their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. See, we already have the law. The law says regardless of what FISA says, regardless of what Section 702 says, regardless, the right of the people to be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be infringed. Congress can authorize the Department of Justice to do what's prohibited by the Constitution. Now, to try and get around that, they said, well, we'll have these, these FISA warrants, right? These, these, these FISA warrants that, that are done in secret courts and you don't know what's going on. Well, the Fourth Amendment goes on. And no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Where's the probable cause? We've already seen FISA being used without legitimate documentation of probable cause to spy on American citizens, including presidential candidates and sitting presidents of the United States. Now, since Congress does have the power to deal with foreign commerce and, and, and international law, if they wish to authorize the investigation into foreigners on foreign soil, that's fine. But when FISA gets murky and says, well, can we use this as has been used in the past against American citizens or people within the, within the United States, the answer is no. Even if the law says you can, you can't. But you see, since so many of us are, are ignorant of the Constitution, A, we have congressmen that write laws that, that violate the Constitution. We have members of the executive branch that, in, in violation of their oath, violate the Constitution. And most people, when they get caught up in this, they don't recognize the violation of the Constitution or the fact that when the Department of Justice violates your rights under FISA or anything else, the individuals doing it are committing a federal crime. Title 18 of the United States Code, Section 242. By the way, since they're doing it in a group, they also violate the conspiracy to deprive someone of a right under color of law, Section 241. And of course, you can still get monetary damages from the government by suing under Title 42, Section 1983. 
But you see, in all the places I see people, um, you know, oh, my rights were violated, my rights were... And in the, the few of them seem to understand that there are cases they can raise. And of those, even fewer, including a lot of lawyers, never bring up the criminal aspect of what is being done. They talk about the, the, the lawsuits, the financial aspect. They almost never bring up the criminal aspect. Now, to expect the DOJ to file criminal charges against itself, well, I, I, I certainly wouldn't hold my breath. But then again, that's why when the states created the federal government, which, by the way, they did, the states created the federal government. I hate to tell people these federal supremacists otherwise. They not only limited their amount of powers, but they retain oversight. Tell me, why are the states not impaneling grand juries to charge uh, uh, these, these people just because of federal crime? See, just because it's a federal crime doesn't mean that the judges in the states aren't bound by the language, by the document in the Constitution. And for that matter, if we the people actually spent less time worrying about how many goodies, how much, how, how many, how much bacon the uh, the our elected officials were going to bring home, our elected employees, our representatives, and actually focused on their fidelity to the oath of office, you'd have more members of the House filing articles of impeachment against the bad actors in government that have been violating the Constitution for decades. See how it always seems to come back to us? Remember, we the people ordained and established the Constitution. The states ratified the Constitution. They made it lawful. They are the signers of the compact that is the Constitution. But it's still incumbent upon we the people, since we are a republic, we hire people to represent us, to exercise our power in our name. It is incumbent on us to know what the Constitution says so we can look at our employees and decide if they are doing their job right or not, and if they're not, to fire them and find somebody else. See, it seems we keep trying to find somebody else to to point to, as is, is their responsibility for the fact that we, as American citizens, won't do our job, at least the, the vast majority of us. If Congress had, what, a 14% a approval rating going into the last midterm election, and 96% of incumbents got reelected, that tells me there's a disconnect somewhere. And that disconnect is between the ears of the American people. But again, this can be fixed. It can be fixed, believe it or not, with just a little bit of education. This is, this is one of the things that I find both most optimistic and most frustrating. The Constitution's only 8,000 words long. It's not that hard to read it. And when you read it, you'll start learning things you never knew about the Constitution. And it does take a little bit more work to study it. Yes, reading it is one thing. You should be able to read it in about 30 minutes. I actually wrote a daily devotional to get people to read the Constitution regularly, read it in 30 days. But I've also got a book on studying it because I want to get down into the nitty-gritty to better understand it. But we don't need all 330 million of us to do that. Because expecting that is, is it's unexpected. You shouldn't expect that. But if we can just get a, a 1% of the American people to both read and study the Constitution, that's 33 million people. How much of a change could we make with 33 million people? I think we could make quite a change. Now, that's not to say there aren't people out there working to uh, protect our rights. And I've got some examples of them, again, primarily from the states. I'm going to be looking at several states that are doing things. 
So it's not all doom and gloom. I don't want you to go out here going, oh, woe is me. There's nothing we can do. There is. And what we need to do is not simply see these people that are standing up and, and trying to protect your rights, but support them as well. I'm going to focus on that in the last segment. But before I go, I do have to take that last break. And I want to remind you that, you know, the Constitution study is just one of many voices heard on America Out Loud. You know, I was just looking the other day and I saw an article from one of my fellow uh, Out Louders talking about the the powers states retain to deal with the uh, uh, the border crisis in our southern border. But I've also, I mean, I've been part of an interview with it, with uh, Greg Bolden, another America Out Louder, where we had two different points of view that we discussed, me and one of, uh, and another of his guests, right for you to hear. So I go there every day. I suggest you go there every day. Again, that's AmericaOutloud.com. But don't just read the, the articles and listen to the podcast. Take all that information, the, the, the videos, the stories, all of it, and share it. Share it with friends. Share it with family. Because believe it or not, by doing so, you do more than just share good information. You're actually sharing the tools to help secure the blessings of liberty. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, Everyday American, to rejoin the Constitution study. And today, well, we're taking a look at, do we need more laws? Do we need more bills of rights? Or do we actually have many of the tools that we need, we just either don't know or are unwilling to use them to protect our rights? Now, I talked in the first segment a lot about a, a North Carolina legislation that purports to create a, a parent's bill of rights. It's pretty good legislation. It does protect a lot of parents' rights. I just don't claim it to be a bill of rights because it doesn't meet the Merriam-Webster definition. Now, the second segment, I looked at some of the federal things that are going on that are attacking our bill of rights 
uh, things like uh, the you know president's press secretary that thinks Congress has a constitutional duty to let them to to spend whatever they want without any restraint, or the Department of Justice saying, well, you know, you need to re-up this law so we can continue spying. Sure, we we talk about spying on foreigners, but there's also evidence out that they're spying on American citizens. But you need to let us do it because well, you got to keep us safe. Well, there's one other thing I want to talk about, and that is the we we talked a bit in, at the end of the last segment about how states retain power. I I, I don't like this. Uh, some people put it as as the Constitution grants power or delegates the power to the states. It does not. It recognizes that powers are retained by the states, and sometimes those states can do things that can protect our rights. Even when people think it's it, it it's maybe not such a good idea, you know, one of the things that I always find interesting is the the great debate over uh, right to work states. And you know, understand a lot of people have a misconception about what a right to work state is. So I used to live in the state of New York, and in the state of New York, if you worked in certain occupations, you had to join the union. And in fact, they eventually passed laws that said, well, okay, you don't actually have to join the union, but you still got to pay part of your dues because the union is doing such wonderful things for you. And I always thought that was the dumbest reason in the world to give money to, 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 an or to force the collection of dues for an organization. If the union was doing such a great job, why do people not want to join it? And if they don't want to join, if they don't think the union is doing a good enough job to warrant their dues, why do you steal money from them in order to pay off the unions? I have my beliefs. I have my opinions. It, it's the, uh, the the problem we have with public uh, uh, public service unions, the incestuous relationship between the, the uh, people negotiating both sides of the contract effectively working to the same goals. In other words, the unions want to negotiate with elected officials, many of whom collect uh, uh, large donations and a lot of assistance in elections from the very unions they're going to be negotiating with late, later. And that's a bad situation. But as general, this idea of a right-to-work state, the idea is you have a right to work. In fact, James Madison, writing in the National Gazette in uh, March of 1792, talking about uh, a man and his rights, he says uh, he has an equal property in the free use of his faculties and free choice of the objects on which to employ them. So yes, you have a right to work. You have the right to exercise your faculties, to employ them in a way that you see fit. Now, South Carolina's uh, Representative Wilson has reinstituted a national right-to-work guarantee bill. See, currently only 27 of the 50 states are right-to-work, meaning you can work without being forced to join a union. And, uh, well, Representative Wilson wants to make that nationwide. Now, do we need this legislation? Well, the only reason we need this legislation is because 23 of the 50 states are ignoring your rights protected under the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. See, among other things, it said that you shall, it says you shall not be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. 
So, Paul, what does it have to do with right to work? Well, the liberty to decide who to work for without being coerced into supporting an organization you don't want to. And I've already pointed out to the property aspect of your right to work, your ability to to use your faculties and employ them how you see fit. See, what these 23 states are doing is violating the Constitution. They get away with it primarily because both the employees, the elected people, and their employers, the citizens of the state, are ignorant of the idea that, wait a second, your work is your property. Your liberty to live your life as you see fit without external in, unnecessary external influence is at stake here. So because of that, we now have to have a federal law to enforce part of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. I did say that there were protections coming out of the states. Well, here's one. So the Senate of Oklahoma has got a bill to ensure that only U.S. citizens are allowed to vote in state elections. Now again, this bill, SB 377, came about probably because of the number of cities that are trying to allow non-citizens to vote. And it, it this is very interesting because the the what Oklahoma is doing is trying to protect itself from some of the other stupidity of the other states, especially if that becomes national. Because it is understood, you look at the Constitution of the United States, it's not as obvious as one might think. In other words, you, you can't go through and, and find, say, um, only citizens have the right to vote. I can't find that in the Constitution. But when I started looking at some of the amendments, I found something. They, the, 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 by the way, the Constitution does talk about uh, uh, you know representatives and direct taxes apportioned, or I should say the House of Representatives is composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states and the electors that actually make up the, have the election. The uh, 17th Amendment says that the Senate is chosen by the people, but are we talking about citizens? So I looked really closely, and I'm going to start off with the 14th Amendment. See, the 14th Amendment, everybody talks about, you know, uh, natu- you know naturalized citizens and, and whatnot. But uh, in reading Section 2, we find, but when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States. It goes on. By the way, it's not alone. So we read in the 15th Amendment, but the right, it says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Uh, the, the 19th Amendment, the right of citizens of the United States to vote, citizens, of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The 24th Amendment, the right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other elections for president or vice president, for the electors of president or vice president, or for senators or representatives in Congress shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll or other tax. Are we sensing a pattern here. How about the 26th Amendment? 
The right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. Now, does this mean a state cannot make it legal for non-citizens to vote in state elections? As long as they do not deny that right to citizens of the United States, yes, a state could say we are going to allow residents that are not citizens to vote in our state and local elections. This is what Oklahoma is trying to bypass because the, the logic, the reasoning behind having non-citizens vote, well, it's not to preserve the republic. The only reason to, if, if, if you have the right to vote without becoming a citizen, why become a citizen? You know, the, what's, what's the old adage, you know, why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? Well, it kind of would fit here, right? Why would you go through the time and effort to become a citizen if you can get all the rights of a citizen without being a citizen? Now, there are, again, mostly I see it in cities. Um, a couple of states, I think, are, are pondering this. But it, um, I can't read people's minds. But my opinion, my guess is, why would people want non-citizens to vote? Because they believe those non-citizens would vote for their political party. Therefore, they want to get as many votes as they can. They place their party above the United States and its citizens. That's my opinion. I don't have proof of that, but that's my opinion. So here you have the, the uh, uh, at least in the Senate, of Oklahoma saying, we're not going to do that here. We're not going to allow this to happen uh, in any of our state elections. Even if the rest of the states go crazy, even if the United States as a whole goes crazy, here we want citizens, U.S. citizens to vote. And again, that U.S. citizen always gets me because most people forget the part of the 14th Amendment that says you're a, you are a citizen of both your state and the United States. But that's a discussion for another day. I know that creates a lot of a lot of agita for a lot of people, but we'll talk about that at another time. Now, the other piece of state legislation I want to look at uh, comes out of Idaho. I had a night. I had a, a preview of this. One of the, my regular listeners uh, lives in Idaho, and and he's been very good about sending me uh, information about some of the legislation and asking for comment. He, he kind of wants, you know, how constitutional is this, and questions about that, um, which which is which is wonderful. But uh, the, the state Senate of Idaho has been introduced a bill that uh, basically would make it a misdemeanor to uh, provide a, an mRNA-based vaccine. So it would change uh, Chapter 9, Title 18 of the United States Code, I'm sorry, the Idaho Code, to say, notwithstanding any other provision of law, a person may not provide or administer a vaccine developed using messenger ribonucleic acid te technology for use in any individual or other mammal in this state. And then uh, it goes on, a person who violates this section is guilty of a misdemeanor. Now, I found it interesting. Right? So there's this whole big brouhaha about the mRNA technology. Uh, you, my opinion on that should be a surprise to nobody who listens to that Um but what I find interesting is the state of Idaho is specifically targeting, targeting the technology, not the fact that it has not been approved by the FDA. And this tickles my fancy in a couple of reasons. One, it's a big finger in the eye to the federal government saying, we don't care what you say. 
You're not allowed to do that here. We don't care what rules. We don't care what coercion. We don't care what persuasion. It is unlawful. It, it would be unlawful within the state of Idaho to either provide or administer an mRNA vaccine. Also found it interesting that not just the individuals, any other mammal in this state. Now that again caught my attention. And the idea, the, the logic I'm assuming is uh, don't put it in the, in the cattle, don't put it in the pork, don't put it in the uh, uh, you know, food products. Oh, we can't get the vaccine into you directly, but we'll put it in the food and then you'll, you know, you'll just absorb it through the food. Um, I just find it interesting they pick mammal. And, and I'm not sure why they chose. Does that mean you can put it in the fish? Does that mean you can put it in the chicken? Does it mean you could put it into, uh, say, grain products? Could they figure out a way to have mRNA vaccines um, in, in effect be built in, you know, be used in some of the pesticides or some of the other uh, the products used on vegetation that then becomes food either for humans or for our feedstock. I guess my point for today is here is a state saying, um, here, we, we want, will you enact this law? This law says we don't want, we will not allow mRNA technology used in people or mammals within the state, and that person will be guilty of a misdemeanor. I don't know what level of misdemeanor. I don't know what the 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 law is about punishments for misdemeanor. It means it's. I mean, obviously, it's not a felony. What I find interesting is the original meaning of the term misdemeanor was it was not a crime. It was simply bad behavior. But this is where we sit. So let's step back before my before my time runs out, and let's look at what we got here. We have a lot of people that are seeing rights being violated. And some people are, they're trying to come up with new bills of rights or other ways to kind of, we really mean it now. It's not just a law, it's a bill of rights to protect the parents, except it doesn't really protect as much as you think it does. We have other people that, that are saying, you know, that, that don't know what the Constitution says and therefore are proceeding down a path that is illegal and unconstitutional, uh, but most people don't know any better. We have some people that are saying, listen, we are going to base our laws based on well, what the Constitution says. Whether it's Oklahoma saying uh, only citizen, U.S. citizens get to vote, to Idaho saying... Uh, no mRNA technology. We don't care what the federal government, we don't care what the FDA says, the CDC says. We have a law that says you cannot use mRNA technology in people or, or mammals in this state. And they can do that. It is constitutional for them to do that because it's actually unconstitutional for the federal government to do that. But again, I've talked about that in the past. The point I want you to know, because again, you're probably not a legislature. You're probably not involved in a lot of this, but I, here's what I want you to understand. If you read and study the Constitution, if you build a strong foundation for your understanding of this Constitution, then when the crazies come along, like the Karine Jean-Pierre's or the AOC's or the others that make ridiculous unconstitutional statements, you'll know better. As John Jay said, by knowing your rights, you'll sooner perceive when they're violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. Now, again, you can go to the website, constitutionsociety.com, and find other resources. I'm working on a new one. 
I'm hoping to have it out in a month or two. And part of it is this idea of of a a mini boot camp to help build that foundation for you to study. So if you want to find out more, again, go to the website constitutionstudy.com. Sign up for one of the mailing lists. The new if you sign up for the newsletter or the uh, um, insider, you'll hear how things are going. You'll you'll hear about it as it becomes available. And of course, you can always listen to the Constitution Study at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard on the iHeartRadio network. You can also find the podcast on your favorite podcast app. The episodes generally come out a day or two after they're heard on talk radio. But if you listen to the podcast, do me a favor, subscribe, rate, and review the show. See, it helps other people find the Constitution Study so they can get this information as well. Now, you can find all the links at the homepage at americaoutlaw.com. But I beg you, I ask you fervently that you share this information, that you join with the rest of us as we help to share not only this news, but the blessings of liberty. <laughs>